Last week I introduced the idea of Isaiah's Christmas tree. And Isaiah's Christmas tree doesn't look like uh, this green thing with lights on it. It looks like this. It looks like a stump. And maybe in future years in your home you might put out a stump every year just as a a conversation piece and a way to remember Isaiah's Christmas tree. He lived 700 years before Jesus and he was uh, prophesying in the nation of uh, Judah. This is the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. And what was once a very successful and and faithful nation had fallen into moral decline, uh, political peril. It was just a a very unstable time. And Isaiah, uh, he gives us this image Considering the nation, he he gives this image of a once strong tree that's just been cut down to the stump. And he calls it the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And from this Christmas stump is going to come a a shoot, a a tiny growth that would grow into a fruitful tree. And it's, it's an image of the coming Messiah. All through Isaiah's prophecy, we see these images of the coming Messiah. Uh, In in other places, he predicted that the Messiah was a baby to be born. Isaiah 7 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel, or God with us. This child would also, this Messiah child would also be a great king. Isaiah 9, 6, which we read earlier. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this is a, this is a God King, a child who is to come and to rule. And Isaiah, in other places, describes what the Messiah's rule will look like. It will, it will be um, ushering in a kingdom of justice and peace and no more suffering, no more tears, and there's healing and all these things. We believe that Jesus was the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about, that he predicted. And therefore, the things that Isaiah said about this Messiah are relevant to us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so today, we're looking at the, this description from Isaiah about this coming Messiah And we see that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It is a spirit of wisdom and understanding. Wisdom and understanding. And when we think about that, it's not just the wisdom of God, but the understanding of God to apply that wisdom perfectly. And this is... um, we understand fulfilled also in Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And we're going to be looking at this passage from Corinthians as well. This is good news for us for two big reasons. One is that we need wisdom. If Jesus is the wisdom of God, we need that because we all need wisdom. And I'm sure everybody in this room could think of one thing, at least in their life right now, where you need greater wisdom. You don't know how to navigate it, or you're not sure what's next, and you want wisdom, and God brings us wisdom in Jesus. That's good news. The second reason it's good news is that his wisdom is greater than our wisdom, and that's very good news. Isaiah chapter 11, after these verses, it says this. He says, He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor on the earth. This Messiah who's to come isn't just, you know, 
using his eyes and ears, but all the wisdom of God. We can only use our senses, and, and sometimes we don't even use our senses well. If you think of the decisions you've made in your life, maybe stupid decisions, maybe the most stupid decisions of your life, my guess is that it's you used your eyes and your ears to make those decisions, and it didn't go real deep. Hey, that looks good to me. Hey, that sounds good to me. You know, I think about college. A credit card. You only have to pay the minimum payment. Sounds good to me. Terrible decision. Hey, uh, other students playing a drinking game at a party. That looks like fun. Terrible decision. Uh, we uh, On a retreat with Ben McDonald. That ice looks thick enough to walk on. Looks good to me. And then she falls through. Um, it was a long time ago. The, the, the point is this. The way, that we make this. the way that we have wisdom is just our senses. But God has all the wisdom of the world beyond even our senses. And we need God's wisdom. Because we all are, have those things that we are seeking wisdom for. And so I want to look at God's wisdom. And I want to show us three aspects of God's wisdom. Where his wisdom is different and greater than the wisdom of the world. And it's the wisdom that we need. Let's pray. Father, we, right now, as we look at your word, we need your wisdom to be at work, to even understand it and comprehend it. And even perhaps today, Lord, to apply it to these things in our lives that come to mind when we, when we think of needing your wisdom, Lord. So we just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit, that same spirit that rested on your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that same spirit he has given to us, to teach us and to counsel and to guide us, Lord. So you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, show us your way today, Lord. Be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the first aspect of God's wisdom where his wisdom is different than the world's wisdom is the wisdom to understand truth from fiction. You see, the wisdom that God displays at Christmas is, is about a pre-existing Son of God, who is born of a virgin, and that is announced by angels and miracles, and to those involved, uh, visions and dreams. To them, these are supernatural events that most people in the world say, well, that's fiction. That's, I, I cannot accept this. This is nonsense. Christianity looks stupid, and it will always look stupid to the powerful and the elite of the world. And there are many who believe, you know, look, everything has a natural and scientific explanation. Um, and, you know, because miracles and virgin birth and stuff, uh, you know, that's, we can't accept that. And there are groups of Christians over, it's it kind of expressed itself in different ways in history, but over the last 100, 150 years, who have said, look, you know, this, our faith in Jesus isn't going to go wide to our world because of these embarrassing you know, miracles, these kind of unscientific things. So what we need to do is tone that down or actually just kind of write that out of our faith and just focus on the things that people will agree on. Things like loving your neighbor. We'll all agree on that. Uh, the dignity of all humans. We can agree on that. Uh, but let's not focus on this literal resurrection of Jesus. Let's not focus on spiritual warfare. Let's not focus on the fact that God has to supernaturally save sinners. Let's just 
let's, let's lift that stuff off and this will make our Christianity more palatable, more popular. Because smart people will, will always be turned off by these things. And it's, and it's created kind of two versions of Christianity. The one that still has the miracles and the one that kind of downplays or writes that stuff out. But here's what happens. Over the last 100, 150 years, all those institutions and groups that have done this sort of uh, no-miracle Christianity are all in steep, steep decline. And during that same time in history, Christianity is exploding across our, goal, our globe. In places like Africa, in Asia, in countries like China. It's, uh, and, and what version of Christianity do you think is the one that's exploding all over the globe? It's the one with the miracles. It's the one with the Jesus who rises from the dead. It's the one with the virgin birth. It's not the sanitized Christianity. Why is that? Because if we sanitize Christianity and you take all the miracles out, all you're left with is just self-help. You're left with some, some good principles and some, some nice thoughts, but it's all about you kind of doing your best. And you know, people will say, they'll say, look, I, I, I use, you use your faith, I'll use reason, I'll use rationality, and I'll use science, and look, I just, I'm going to use those things and my goal is to be happy. And I'm going to be happy by not doing harm to other people. I'm going to be happy by not doing harm to our planet. And I'm going to live in that such a way. And if everybody actually lived that way, not harming each other and not harming our planet, we'd, you know, we'd have this beautiful unity and we'd all be happy. In, in response to that person, I'd say, well, I, I don't think you're truly using pure science to come up with that, by the way. I don't think science teaches us that, it's, that we don't harm other people or that we don't harm our planet. I'm not sure that's science. I actually think you're pointing to a, a moral absolute that you've defined, which points to a moral universe, which points to God. But that aside... Uh, my question is, well, what if you don't get that happiness? You live this way of life. You don't achieve the happiness that you're looking for. You know, because I, I love science and I love technology. And the world that we live in is fantastic. We have uh, ways that we can communicate with each other through technology, ways that we can travel like never before. Anywhere on the earth, you could just travel wherever you want to go. Um, we have medical advancements and we are healthier and living longer than before. We live uh, much more comfortable lives than perhaps any time in history. And we're doing so much better than previous generations in this way, better than our ancestors. But the question is, are we really happier? Have we really achieved that happiness that we want? If you look at things like suicide rate or rates of depression, are, are, are we really happier? Because all the wisdom of the world and all the techniques and all the information, it won't overcome the deep brokenness of humanity. We have to deal with the broken nature of things and, quite honestly, deal with death. Because I don't think death helps you achieve happiness. And so that's still sort of looming out there. And it's when we realize that everything that the world has to offer isn't enough and that it won't fully satisfy, that only the God of the universe can satisfy my deepest longings, who can help me to understand even death itself. 
And we understand that through the birth of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his bodily resurrection from the dead. And the world says, that's foolishness. But that's the wisdom of God. And it's the truth. A so-called smart person can say, well, we're wise and you're foolish. And God says in verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the, intelligent of the, intelli- the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Jesus said, if you hold to my teachings, you will know the truth, the real truth. And the truth will set you free, ultimately free. That's the first aspect of God's wisdom that is just completely contrary to the wisdom of the world. The second thing, second aspect of God's wisdom is that God's wisdom helps us to understand true success from failure. And we, we think about, even just thinking about Christmas and the Christmas story, this is a complete violation of the wisdom of the world. Picture this, if you wanted to start a movement in the world, and you wanted to start a very successful movement, uh, and you wanted such, so successful that 2,000 years later, just about everybody on earth would know your movement and be aware of your movement. And about a third of the world would put their faith in, the, in, in, in your thing that you've started. It's a huge vision. You're going to follow its teachings and you're going to orient your life around this movement. How do we get there? And you, you form together a, uh, a strategic planning team around you. Say, hey, we're going to launch this thing. What are we going to do? Say, okay, number one, we're going to start it with a baby born in poverty, so poor that a fe- we're gonna, the baby's first bed will be a feeding trough for animals. That's step one. Okay, step two, starting this big movement. Let's uh, have the baby, let's keep that baby in small villages out of the way of the urban centers and not, you know, not in these major areas, but just sort of in these out of, um, out of the, you know, into the smaller villages. Number three, let's make sure that this baby who grows up will uh, have no connections to people of power, no people of political influence, uh, no uh, business leaders, and actually only associating, uh, or primarily associating with just kind of common people or just even kind of people of low status. Number four, we're going to start this movement and then uh, so we get the baby in the out-of-way places with no great connections. Oh, and then we'll execute this person in disgrace. That's how we're going to do this movement. If that was today with the world's wisdom, you'd say, that's crazy. This is never going to go anywhere. Yet, that's the wisdom of God. In the wisdom of God to understand true success, that's the plan. That's the strategic plan. Verse 22 in, from the First Corinthians passage. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We know what people want. People want spectacular signs. People want the greatest wisdom. We're going to give them a dead king. We're going to give them a crucified, humiliated Messiah whose, whose uh, associates all abandon him in his time of need and is left there to die. That's, God's, that's the greatest vision of success in God's kingdom. It's not that God's wisdom is not the wisdom of the world. Yet we see at Christmas 
the sages, the, the, the magi, the wise men, come to visit Jesus and they give him gifts. It's an image, it's, it's a symbol of the reality that the greatest wisdom of the world bows before Jesus. And we think of ways that we struggle with this, ways that we define our lives, that as we see ourselves as failures, as we haven't been successful as we want to be. We, we aren't achieving the goals that we think we should be achieving. Oftentimes, it's because we're defining our lives and our success on the world's measure of success, not God's measure of success. God's measure of success is just to trust him, to just obey him, to put our faith in him. That's success in God's kingdom. And yet we chase all these other things. It's, it's, it's not our great accomplishments. It's what he has accomplished. Look at verse 26. I see this verse, I, 1 Corinthians 1.26. I see a verse like this, and I think, what kind of success or what kind of great things does God desire to do with groups of people, humble people, who are just simply trusting him? Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of were influential. Not many were of noble birth. And then I, had, I come across this quote from uh, William Donald, one of the founders of our church. His name's on this plaque up here. William Donald said this. He said, on May 7th, 1846, a council was called for the purpose of forming a Christian church. The churches we invited were not our immediate neighbors, they not being in sympathy with our design. Instead, we found friends in Fitchburg, Haverhill, and Boston. Small as that council was, it numbered all who we could then find to sympathize with our cause. Our friends among the wise and learned of the town were few. Our friends among the wise and learned, all the smart people, all the educated people, all the wealthy people, uh, the friends were few. He says this, but... If we had little to cheer us, we thanked God and took courage at every remembrance of our righteous cause and the honor conferred upon us in being allowed to stand forth as friends of the poor and friendless. All the elite, you can take your education, you can take your money. We have the privilege of loving poor people. We have the privilege of helping escaping slaves in our country. And they banded together and thanked God for the opportunity. How does God define success? God's wisdom is not the wisdom of the world. His success is not the success of the world. And if you're struggling with that, my, my heart for you is to understand God's way is not our way. The third aspect of God's wisdom that is different than the world's wisdom is uh, the wisdom to understand eternal life. This is religious wisdom. This is the world's religious wisdom. There's basically two ways that we see it in our world. One is what I call the traditional view of religion, which is if you are good, God rewards you, and if you're bad, God punishes you. So you do your religious duty, you follow your path, you do your thing, and then at the end you get your blessing, your eternal life, your reincarnation, your free, you get whatever good thing is at the end. And if you are bad or evil, or you don't follow the path, you'll be somehow condemned or punished, suffer God's wrath. That is the traditional view. There's, there's also what I call the acceptance view. The acceptance view is 
you decide your own path of right and wrong and follow it, but make sure not to impose it on anyone else. We just, you just completely accept everybody's way of right and wrong, complete acceptance of everyone, and everything's equally valid in a spirit of love. Everyone's just okay the way they do it. The problem with the, that worldly uh, religious wisdom is that th- those two views are actually very similar because they both depend on you. They depend on how well you follow your religious code or how well you follow the code that you made up. It's all about you. And actually, there's a lot of pressure in that to keep it up, to to do it well, to do it well enough to achieve whatever is at the end. And if you achieve it, and if you do it, then you are better than people who don't. Genuinely, because you did it. Congratulations, you can boast. But here's God's wisdom. It's not the traditional view. It's not this acceptance view. It's about Jesus, who came to this world, not just another prophet with a message, not just another law code to follow, but he came to die on a cross. So there's radical love and acceptance, but it's very, very costly acceptance and very costly love. He gave his very life for it. And his grace then is extended to us. In his death, he takes the death that we deserve for not following God's way. And he gives us his righteousness and he gives us new life that frees us to to love and obey God. And then in verse 30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. None of us have earned any of this. He is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our redemption. So you can't boast. Why are you a Christian? Is it because you're wiser than other people? Is it because you are more capable or influential than other people? Is it because you're just a little bit better than other people? No. You're a Christian because Jesus accomplished everything you need and you put your faith in him. Christianity, therefore, becomes the only club in the world where the only criteria for membership is to admit, I do not meet the criteria for membership. And then you're in. That I need a savior to come in my place because whatever code I make up for myself or whatever path I follow, I fall short. Advent and Christmas are a great time to remember that the wisdom of the world is not God's wisdom. And thank God for that. That our, our wisdom that we have is, is not enough. It's insufficient. God's wisdom is this little shoot coming out of a stump that grows to be this, a fruitful life for us. And when we, in that, whatever that thing is that you want God's wisdom for, just remind yourself, God's wisdom in this is not my plan. God's wisdom in this is not what the world thinks is going to be pretty or successful, but it's God's wisdom to you. Let's pray. Father, we, we think of these things where we desire your wisdom and we just praise you because you're, as your word says, when we lack wisdom, we ask you for it and you give it freely without partiality. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that you pour your wisdom into us and we see it in your word and we hear it as we speak to one another by the power of your spirit. And we just pray for more of your wisdom, Lord. Help us to push back against the world's wisdom. 
Father, we confess that we do. We've relied on the world's wisdom. We receive again your grace. We receive your grace to forgive us and to reorient our lives towards you and your way. Father, we thank you that that same Holy Spirit that came and rested on your Son, our Lord Jesus, that same Spirit he has given to us to guide, to give wisdom, to give insight and understanding. So you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that your wisdom would reign and rule in our hearts and minds and all that we put our hand to. We thank you that you love us this much. We pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.